0: Get ready to hear some noise tonight. You're about to go behind enemy lines with the original Blues Hockey Podcast.
1: Let's go Blues Radio. This is Let's Go Blues Radio, the official podcast of your Stanley Cup champion, St. Louis Blues. This is Season 8, Episode 7, Franchise Episode number 193. Getting close to 200. Thanks to the Wild and Free for the use of their song, Fire. Also thanks to Tom Calhoun, who can be found at paguytom.com. Uh, Both Wild and Free and Tom Calhoun, great friends of the show. We appreciate all that they do. Make sure you check out the letsgoblues.com shop and consider buying a reasonably priced shirt, mug, or sticker. All proceeds go back into the show. By the way, I am Jeff Ponder. I am your host for the summer shows, the Behind Enemy Lines Shows. I want to ask you to subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple, or Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also listen at letsgobluesradio.com. And of course, if you listen on Apple Podcasts, please give us a five-star rating. We would really appreciate that. So some breaking news, not really breaking, I guess uh, by the time this comes out, it'll be about 24 hours that this news has been live. And I know it's a huge deal here in St. Louis. The 2019 Stanley Ponder Cup Memorial Tournament is back. It's the fourth annual. It will be held on November 23rd, 2019. If you're listening right now saying, what the hell is this tournament? It is a roller hockey tournament held at Queenie Park, Midwest Sport Hockey Uh, to honor my late father the proceeds go to the leukemia and lymphoma society as well as be the match and uh, if you have not signed up for be the match yet make sure you go to their website be the match.org yeah definitely need to uh, do that folks because uh, we saw some of the uh, people involved in the blues getting involved with be the match it's a great organization And in order to get your blood type, all they do is get a swab of your mouth. So it's not even drawing blood. So for those of you scared of needles, I don't want to hear it. Uh, You can sign up for the Ponder Cup Memorial Tournament uh, over at dropinstl.com. Go over to the tab that says 2019 SPCMT Tourney. And uh, that will take you to uh, the page that you just look for the donate button. That'll uh, get you your spot. It'll make you pay 50 bucks. That's the tournament fee if you want to play. Otherwise, keep November 23rd open, folks. That's the Saturday before Thanksgiving. And uh, we will have plenty of raffle prizes. And we always have a couple really big ones like Blues jerseys, Cardinal tickets, uh, that kind of thing. So November 23rd, 2019, 2 p.m. Do not miss it. Well, we are going to get into our first segment of the show. Keep the party going. This is the segment where you, the listener, get to write into me, the host, and I read your email on air. And what uh, you need to write us about is how the Stanley Cup Championship has affected you personally. Uh, We shared this on one of our live shows, each uh, myself, Kurt, and Bill. And we thought, man, it'd be fun to hear from our listeners on uh, you know basically how the Stanley Cup Championship has affected them, what it's meant for them, uh, what got them into hockey, whatever you want to talk about in terms of the Stanley Cup Championship. Uh, and we've, uh, we've had a great time with the emails that have come in. I've got about three to four more that are lined up for the next couple shows, but after that, I am out. So if you have not written in yet and you'd like to, please get that done because uh, we would love to read more emails. And like I said, I want to do this for all 30 summer shows, so uh, please write in radio at letsgoblues.com and uh, let me know what you think about the Blues Stanley Cup Championship. Today's write-in comes from our friend Sarah. Sarah says, Backstory, I am the oldest of four children, born and raised in St. Louis by parents who cultivated our love for Cardinals baseball and blues hockey from an early age. My parents were season ticket holders in the early '70s before we were all born. I have fond memories of listening to Cardinals and Blues games with my dad on the old AM radio that we kept in the kitchen or garage. One of the most vivid memories I have tied the Blues radio, tied to Blues radio, is the St. Louis Blues march played to kick off each broadcast. Oh, I'm with you, Sarah. I I hear that and I just I get all pumped up now. It's funny I, I've got it on. A playlist that I listen to before hockey sometimes. I'm such a nerd, so I'm with you on that. I am a musician at heart, and music just speaks to me. Every time I hear that staccato beat followed by the descending horn line, I want to watch a blues hockey game. My favorite blues memory before this legendary year was going to Lambert Airport and waiting at the gate when the players were on a red-eye in from Chicago after playing the Blackhawks. I still have the pics of me and my sibs with Shanahan, Hole, and Cujo, as well as the mini blues stick that Brett Hall signed for me. I think I was eleven or twelve years old. It still burns me that those three players ended up in Detroit, Hall and Shanahan winning cups there. Ugh. Yeah. Oof, I'm with you, Sarah. Tough stuff. Fast forward, I am forty-one and I live in Lincoln, Nebraska. I don't get to see most games, but I listen on the blues app. I have purchased the Glenn Miller Orchestra version of the St. Louis Blues March on iTunes and it has been my ringtone the last five years. This season has been unreal and I bought the NHL TV package to watch at the end of the season and then YouTube Live to get to watch the playoffs. I was on a business trip in Boston and the Blues became Western Conference champs. I was wearing my Play Gloria t-shirt in a bar at the Seaport District surrounded by Bostonians who wanted uh, the Sharks to win. At the end of that game, I screamed, paid my tab, and I walked back to my hotel singing Gloria the whole way, where I continued to sing to record myself singing it to upload to my Instagram story. I am sure my neighbors were not thrilled. Flying back from visiting my son in Seattle for Game 4, and United screwed our flights <laughs> No surprise. so I would be in air during the game instead of home like I should have been. But praise the Lord, our flight from Chicago to Omaha had direct TV, and I had the game on while everyone else was still boarding. My daughter was mortified by my outbursts, and I'm sure the other passengers didn't appreciate it either. In a momentary lapse of judgment, where I somehow still thought I was a 12-year-old girl, I spent $200 to get my company seats for the mixtape tour here in Lincoln. The very first concert I ever attended was New Kids on the Block at the Checkerdome. It was a fun concert. Took me back and the people watched the people watching was incredible. But when Donnie, Danny, Jordan, Jonathan, and Joey came out for the last set singing Hangin' Tough, they're wearing Bruins jerseys. Ugh! Ugh. No one could hear my boos or Bruins suck over the hundreds of screaming 40 somethings, so I turned to my husband and said, Let's go. Game six, my husband offers to buy tickets and drive to St. Louis so he can attend the game. I am also superstitious, and I told him that if we went to all that expense and trouble, they would surely lose, and then I'd be even more pissed about the loss. That night, we watched from home, and my brother-in-law roasted me in the family group chat. He said leaving new kids on the block hanging tough was what cursed the Blues, and the Bruins would be loving me forever since I helped them out. I was starting to believe him. I am insanely jealous of everyone who got to watch Game 7 in around, in and around St. Louis, other Blues fans and friends. I was on another business trip, this time in Hartford, Connecticut, enemy territory. I was at dinner with two business associates, one a Capitals fan and the other Islanders, but being New Englanders, both were rooting for Boston. Wait a minute. Okay, wait a minute. Capitals fan and Islanders fan and they're rooting for Boston? Boston? That's not okay. There's something wrong with the people you ate with. All right, back to Sarah. We sat in the bar where we had to ask them to turn the game on and we watched the whole game without sound. I am a screamer, hence the issue on the airplane, and I was the only person cheering when the Blues scored. After the game, they dropped me back off at my hotel where I changed out of my suit and into my Play Gloria t-shirt before going down to the lobby bar for a celebratory drink. They had already turned the TVs off, no one else cared about the Stanley Cup. The bartender tried to kick me out for my shirt, but ended up giving me my drink on the house. Pretty anticlimactic. I was too wired to sleep, so I had the TV coverage on and was up watching videos on Instagram and Twitter until almost 2am. The next morning, I found an app and started listening to KMOX on my smartphone. I had to be as close to the excitement as possible. I was just too far removed and way too excited about what had just happened. I filled my eyes and ears with everything I possibly could that was blues related. I had to get to St. Louis to share this experience with others who cared as much as I did. In the midst of my meetings that day, I changed my Friday flight from Hartford to Lincoln to a Thursday flight from Hartford to St. Louis so I could go to the parade with my brother and my parents on Saturday. Of course, I was wearing my blue shirt and from Hartford I had to connect in Detroit to get to St. Louis. Outside the gate in Detroit, there were several others in blues apparel, and as I boarded the plane, a man in first class told me that he was supposed to go to Chicago that weekend, but he changed his flight to St. Louis to go to the parade with his family. Me too! I asked the flight attendant if she would play Gloria over the intercom and assisted by a passenger Spotify she did as the plane finished boarding. That's awesome. That is so cool. To top it off, she didn't charge me for my adult beverage on a flight because I was wearing the right shirt and she had actually worked for the Blues for 10 years. These were the connections I was craving. Nothing could wipe the smile from my face. I got my brother to pick me up from the airport at 9.30 p.m. and slept on his couch. Bobby and I re-watched Game 7 together Friday night and planned to head downtown the next day. We got to 17th and Market at about 9.30 a.m. and were already 10 people deep. 10 plus people deep. I spent most of the parade with my arms straight up in the air to take video of the parade as it went by because my 5'2 self couldn't see anything, but the atmosphere was all I expected and more. I got my picture with some of the Jacks and celebrated with total strangers. Bobby and I sent our parents and his four-year-old home and went down to the arch grounds with our cousin, but we were there too late. Still, we just walked up to the stage just to be there. We did not want this day to end. While Bob and I were taking it all in, our cousin took a walk up to the stage and grabbed a couple of the ferns. We are now the fern people as far as the park rangers who stopped us are concerned. What a great souvenir. Winky face. Since I have come home, I have continued to listen to this podcast to watch videos and consume Instagram posts and tweets. They are harder to come by as the days go on. I have to search STL Blues rather than my feed just being of the blue note. Seeing The Cup Tracker account on Twitter and the players at the Cardinals game last night, this was a little while ago, I j- just made me want to be in St. Louis. What a magical time for our city and our fan base. I'm still not ready for this feeling to end. One of my sales reps in Philly is friends with several of the Jacks, and I'm hoping to plan my next trip for when, hopefully, someone from the Blues takes the cup up there. Then I can really celebrate and move on. Maybe? Fingers crossed. Thanks for keeping up the podcast through the summer. I am not ready to be finished with hockey yet. Take care and let's go Blues. Uh, yeah, Sarah, you know, it's funny you say that. Uh, you're not ready for hockey to be finished with yet. I never am. And we've taken summers off in the past, like, you know, every other podcast except like the Puck podcast. And I just sit and I want to talk hockey, even if it's with myself. I find myself wanting to just, blast out something about hockey. So I decided last summer, you know what, I'm going to do that over the summer. I'm going to keep it going. And I didn't regret it one bit. I will say, this summer has been a lot of work. So it's been a little tougher than usual. Uh, especially since I just moved. But, uh, yeah, I'm the same way. I, I Even though it's work, it, there's a lot of work that in, involved with podcasting. It's fun still. It's still great. And kind of just Having the constant reminder of what the Blues accomplished, you know, I mean, obviously, I would have that no matter what because, I mean, for one, my walls are just filled with Blues stuff. Um, and plus, I play the game. like, you know, all my friends are Blues fans. Still, being able to do this twice a week and and just talk about the sport I love has been great. Uh, it's been a good release for me. I've enjoyed it. Hopefully, you're enjoying listening. And uh, yeah, this has been great, and I'm with you. Let's keep the party going. Well, before we get to our guest of this week, I do want to mention a slight show error last week and apologize to those of you who may have been confused. Last week, before the talk with Anthony and Russ came on, I mentioned that uh, this was recorded after Game Two of the Stanley Cup Final, but as you listened, you found out it was actually during Game I'm mean, going after Game Four. So it was a 2-2 series at that point. Uh, that was my fault. I So I the way that I do these, obviously, I record them ahead of time, and then I edit them right away because I know if I don't, I'm going to leave too much work for me in the future. And I had written down the wrong day, I guess, that we had recorded. So I apologize for that. I don't think it took much away from your listening pleasure, hopefully, but I just wanted to mention it as somebody pointed it out. And, uh, yeah, I had a, I had written down the wrong day, so I apologize for that. Well, let's uh, let's get to my interview, and uh, this was this is the right information, so you don't need to question me this time. Justin Bradford of Penalty Box Radio, he, he covers the Nashville Predators. Somebody I've met in person multiple times, very uh, intelligent hockey mind, a guy I really enjoyed talking to. Uh, we talk a lot of Blues and Predators past, including uh, the most recent playoff series, and much much more. We recorded this on June sixth. And I believe, hopefully I'm correct here, uh, that was before Game 3 of the Stanley Cup Final, So it was the same day, and it was before Game 3. So enjoy. Today, it is Nashville Predators at Let's Go Blues Radio. And we are joined by Justin Bradford of Penalty Box Radio, someone I've had the pleasure of actually meeting in my time in the media, but we'll get to him in a second. First, I want to uh, mention the all time record for the Blues against their rival Nashville Predators. 114 games played, 56 wins, 40 losses, four ties, and 14 overtime losses. Uh, the first meeting between these two teams was uh, November 14th, 1998, uh, in Nashville, and that was a 5 1 win for the Blues. Uh, an important note in Blues franchise history. This was captain Alex Petrangelo's first game came against the, uh, the Nashville Predators. It was on October 10th, 2008. He had zero points in a five, two blues win. So, uh, you know, Nashville coming into a, a big important piece of Alex Petrangelo's career. That was when he was on his eight game stint. Uh, mm-hmm. the first time he came up with the blues. Uh, now I want to bring in my guest, Mr. Justin Bradford again, Justin, uh, Penalty Box Radio is where you can find him and, and everything he talks about the Nashville Predators. He is a credentialed media member with the Predators, and he joins us right now. Thank you, Justin, for joining us today.
0: Absolutely, Jeff. Thanks for having me. And, and I gotta ask—I always hear Petrangelo's name pronounced differently in broadcasts. How does it get messed up so much by people?
1: <laughs> you you want to you want to make a Blues fan mad? Just I don't call get it. him peter angelo or whatever pierre <laughs> Maguire calls him it's it's terrible like I, how do you not know how to say the man's name
0: i don't know names are a big thing to me and trying to get them right people make fun of me because i try to get the finnish and swedish names correct and i'm going i look at petrangelo's name going it's not that difficult i, I if you just make it run together this is how it should be said peter angelo no yeah.
1: No, it's it's terrible. It's uh, well, it's funny because, you know, I'm not sure if you're aware, but his uncle played in the league, Frank Peter Angelo with the Hartford Whalers, I believe. And he did pronounce it Peter Angelo. And uh, uh, Petrangelo Alex was asked. actually Alex's dad was asked, how do you pronounce it? And he said, it's Petrangelo Frank. Uh, He did it wrong. He pronounced it incorrectly. And I've heard rumors. I don't know if it's true. That the reason he did that was because he was just tired of people saying it wrong. So oh. he just said, "You know what? Yeah, it's Peter Angelo." Oh,
0: it's like what yeah. the European players tend to do with their names. Like, yeah, I'll just Americanize it for you. I'm like, stop it! It's your name. You should have. You know, it's okay to be prideful in your name.
1: Right. Yeah. Actually, I spoke with a gentleman yesterday. Um, uh, my car insurance agent is. Uh, he's a, a Russian fellow, and um, his name. He always calls himself Peter, but he spells it P E T A R. So when I went into his office and actually saw his name spelled out, I'm like, that's not Peter. And he kind of smiled at me and I go, Is it Pitar? And he's like, Yeah, that's correct. Most people can't say it right. And I go, Why do you go by Peter? And he's like, Because that's what everybody calls right. me. And I'm like, Good lord, man. Like you should make people say your name correctly.
0: <laughs> it really, like um, so the trade that happened with the predators this past season, they brought in Mikhail Glenland and people like it's Granland. Like, no, really, it's not. That's that's the American way. And people would ask him, and he kind of smiles, like eh, Gretlin. Like, no, dude, come on. It is your name. It's your yeah, name. Just- it's okay to try to get it correct. And there was Pontus Oberg, who has been gone by Aberg, Oberg, all these different things. And he's bouncing around the league now, now now with Minnesota. But it was actually Oberg. And it's like just just ask and tell us the really the way you really pronounce your name, so we can get it right. It's it's don't Americanize it for us. Be
1: right. I had no idea that he was Oberg. I thought it was Aberg.
0: Yeah, that A with the little circle on the top of it is makes me to the O sound. We didn't realize it until someone in the minors, Daniel Lavender, who's with Admiral's Roundtable that covers Milwaukee Admirals before, he asked and really asked. He's like, how do you really do it? He's like, it's an Oberg.
1: Like, huh. Oh. <laughs> I did. Man, I feel dumb. I've talked about how great his name is, Pontus Aberg, before, and I've been saying it wrong.
0: Well, I mean, at least you didn't mess it up in uh, one blog. I think it, somebody put ponuts instead of Pontus. Oh, no.
1: Oh, no. Pwnuts. Oh, no. That's not good at all. <laughs> uh, so, Justin, as I said, we want I want to talk Nashville Predators with you. It's been a short history, but it's been a uh, history with the Blues uh, that's gone fairly long because they have always been in the same division, the Central Division. Uh, and it makes sense because obviously Nashville is not that far from St. Louis. Um, so really the first thing that I want to talk to you about, and, and I know this is going way back. We're talking about yeah, 21 years now. Uh, the 1998 expansion draft when the uh, Nashville Predators came into the league. Uh, this was not the Las Vegas Golden Knights. This was not uh, the type of uh, draft we've seen recently. And it will see with Seattle. Um, this was, Hey, uh, what uh, third and fourth line players do you not want anymore? Uh, put them on the new team. So, uh, and there's a, a couple Blues that that were actually kind of you know fairly favorites here that went to the Predators. Uh, Blair Atchum and Darren Turcott. People probably remember Blair Atchum from the uh, uh, CPA line with Craig Conroy, Scott Pellerin. Um, he actually ended up playing 53 games for the Blues and. Larry Plo, GM of the blues at the time was such a fan of his that he requested a trade back for, uh, a 2006 round draft pick. Uh, here's an or I'm sorry, Plo's, uh exact quote on action. quote, Blair's not a player in the bottom third of our roster. He's one of our first nine forwards. He can move up to the first or second line without missing a step if we need him. So he ended up having a, a decently long career, I guess two or three years with the blues, but, uh, I, I would bet that uh, he's not even really a footnote in Nashville Predators history, only playing 53 games.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, it's one of those ones where you kind of go, oh, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because, I mean, we hear Darren Turk a little bit more because he, he wore an A mm-hmm. for two years, for the, the the final two years of his career. He wore that A, so it was a little bit more talk there just because he was a leader on the team designated there, even though he didn't obviously produce <laughs> much um, at all. Uh, because of injuries and everything and is limited there, but Blair Atum it's uh, it's what, it's not in the name that gets tossed around in terms of it's more of anything. it's tossed around as the, one of the joke names of you know longtime predator. Uh, <laughs> kind of like with, when you have those trades where the player played one game and they got hurt and they're done. Um, so you hear more about Drake Barahowski. you hear more about obviously Mike Dunham and um, Kivo Teen, those kinds of guys. Uh, so it's it's interesting though to look back at the expansion draft and how much things have changed. That's what it really was, and I think that's where people look at the expansion era, especially with the Predators and then obviously the Thrashers and the Wild and the Blue Jackets and looking how it was so different back then, how for the Predators at least, they're putting together after that first couple seasons, putting together fairly competitive teams, obviously not playoff teams, but being competitive and looking at how the history of those teams came through, the Predators never sucked enough enough to get high draft picks. And so it was difficult for them to build because they were never crap. <laughs> yeah. always kind of middle of the road or they're, you know, they're getting the, the eighth pick or the 10th pick or the 11th pick. And so they, they weren't awful enough to get up there. So it was interesting to see how it was built in some of these names that, that go back there, how they really mostly were, you know, the third, fourth line guys and didn't have to make the, as tough of decisions as people had to for Vegas or have to make horrible trades like Florida did with Vegas <laughs> to give him way more talent. Yeah. Um, you know, fire your coach and make him have a chip on his shoulder, and then he drives his team to Stanley Cup final like Vegas. Uh, <laughs> but it's just interesting to see you can go back to some of those names, um, and it's interesting to talk to other fan bases to see if they remember those names or take an expansion depth and their feelings on it. Because most most now Predators fans, they only know like Kimo Timonen is one of those names that's going to stand out to them just because of he was a captain. In terms of from the expansion- the early expansion years, uh because most of those guys kind of rotated out after the first couple of seasons with nashville
1: yeah that's uh that's that's definitely interesting again you look at uh the Vegas roster, and it's like man they they're gonna try to hold on as many of those guys as they can from their first year and and i've you know we talked I've already spoken with somebody from the Florida Panthers and he basically uh, admitted and the San Jose sharks too they basically admitted like yeah once the uh the the first season was done it was all right let's get rid of all these guys and try to get guys that can actually win so it's uh it's interesting but but Nashville's very interesting too because like you said it's not that they didn't pull a Vegas they didn't you know take first in the division and and head on to the Stanley Cup final but like you said they weren't terrible to start their tenure and a lot of that credit, I would think, goes to probably one of the greatest coaches of all time, Barry Trotz, and then obviously GM David Poyle, who is still with the organization. Uh, how are they heralded? Are they held up pretty high there in Nashville as, as you know, kind of, uh, I guess, pioneers for hockey in Nashville?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And especially Barry Trotz, because uh, most people, when they saw Barry go on and, and win the Cup with Washington, everyone here was happy for him. I mean, it was just because he was... Fu- Finally, given offensive talent, which it was hard to come by in Nashville for the most period. And it wasn't David Bowles' fault. It was more that internal budget fault um, that you could, just couldn't afford players. Or, again, you didn't suck enough to be able to draft top three in terms of forwards. Or the one year when you had all these forwards in the top five, every one of them got taken. So you took Seth Jones, and then you had to trade him away just to get a center. Um, but, yeah, Barry Trotz is heralded as, as so far up there because, one, he's a good person. That's that's that was really huge. He took it upon himself to help grow the game of hockey here. And as anyone knows, that was started as a non-traditional area where hockey wasn't as big or it was, you know, minor league. And that was about it. Having people invest in the community was so huge. And Barry Trotz was willing to do that. He was willing to go out there, go into the community, have those how to play hockey, learn two things, just like the players now do. But it was different back then because you have your head coach going out there and being, you know, talking about the game and obviously. He's Canadian. He's from Winnipeg. He's from Manitoba. He, he knows the game of hockey, and he's willing to go out in the southern markets there and talk to kids, talk to adults, do the learn-to's, how-to's, and, and be able to build a competitive team. And when you look at the roster from some of these early National Predators teams, you're going, how did they even get to where they were? You, you don't understand how they were even competitive because you see those names compared to others that were in the division. And he was able to at least make them competitive and built that quote-unquote Predators brand of hockey, which was – Blue collar, hard working, play above the skill level on paper that you have. And so that's why he's heralded so far, so high, because he made the team competitive. And that's what helped grow the game. And and even getting through the lean years for the almost the almost sale and move to Hamilton, Ontario, uh, they were able to get through it. And David Poyle even getting through all that as well, because he was forced to make trades. I mean, he had a very competitive team before the potential sale for the locals bought it here in Nashville. when the team almost moved. They had an extremely competitive team. I mean, you look—they had Peter Forsberg on the team going in the playoffs. He got hurt, but but they were built and on the way up. And if only I think it was two points behind Detroit for first in the West the one year, and we're going. Of course, it had to be Detroit. Just two points behind Detroit and could have changed everything because they matched up poorly with the San Jose sharks that year and just had to he- hold on for dear life to lose. And uh, I think it was five or six games. Um, so just being able to put competitive teams together and you think, Oh God, what's going to happen now? And they have to do a fire sale of all these contracts. And yet the next year they were still competitive. That's all on Barry trots. Those players wanted to work hard. So it's really neat to see the way it's grown, but it's been, I don't want to see so different from every other team, but it's, it's kind of built that brand of fan in there that it started out with. It's obviously changed now after the Stanley Cup final run when people want to hop on. Uh, but before that, it was the blue-collar, hardworking people really appreciated. They appreciate the small, hardworking players, and that still happens now. I mean, Rocco Grimaldi was the fan favorite last season. Rocco Grimaldi, the guy who's listed at 5'9", <laughs> who is a spitfire out there and fast and always hardworking, just like Victor Arvidsson as well. People appreciate those types of players that are talked down upon because of their size or say they can't amount to anything because of this or that. People tend to appreciate those, and that's in any market, but I really have seen that a lot, and it goes true with Nashville as well. They appreciate the blue-collar type of workers uh, on the ice there, too, and that's, I think, instilled from the Barry Trotz era.
1: Yeah, so you mentioned the fan base down there in Nashville. And, uh, you know, it's it's funny. For those of, of Blues fans who have been down there uh, or have actually who haven't been down there, haven't witnessed it, it is – and I hate to, to give Nashville credit because I know we're, we're division rivals. I shouldn't be <laughs> saying this. And, and, you know, but, man, the fans down there are so passionate and it's so much fun to go to games. I was telling you that I came down for a game in 2012. I I believe when we met and um, I was uh, I was I was sitting in the press box and I was sitting next to Jeremy Gover and he looks over at me and says, hey, uh," he's like, you ready for your first um, TV timeout standing ovation? And I'm like, what (laughs) TV timeout standing O from the crowd the entire time in a regular season game in February? I mean, and 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 that's a common thing. They do that there and it's just it's so impressive to see. And man, that's just it's a fun atmosphere. I know people don't like the goalie chants and some of the things they do there, but uh <laughs> there's a lot of passion down there in Nashville for hockey.
0: There there is. And I mean, we we see things evolve so much and take on a mind of their own and that standing ovation thing is Pretty awesome because again, that goes back to our previous point with Barry Trotz and the hard working the hard aspect of the team. That especially if this, they see this team doing something extremely extremely good, like killing off a penalty that's at a pivotal point in the game, or really having a great shift in the offensive zone, even if they don't score, but they notice that it's a long you know a minute and a half straight in the O zone, or something that's really compelling happens before the TV timeout crowd is getting on their feet and sometimes they're trying to do those advertisements the megatron and game ops is like oh let's just scale that down a little bit the crowd's doing their own thing Um, they they do that a a lot in nashville and and it's been interesting to to see that happen now full credit to blues fans because and i mean you kiss our ass we'll kiss your ass um especially that building's been rocking and you can tell the passion And, and the, the love for that team. And because it's been, it's been so long that you can tell people are just that excited and they're letting all their emotions out. And that's what you want out of sports. The emotions just be let out because it means so much to those people that have waited. For something like that to happen. And I mean, Nashville has a short history, but it's just, St. Louis fans have had to suffer too. And so being able to experience that is just pretty awesome for that fan base to be able to go through this experience and to have that uh, and to be talked about. Um, because I mean, it's not like St. Louis has had the easiest time in terms of sports the past few years. Um, so it's been really cool to see that emotion be able to come out from blues fans and, and do that. And I mean, in Nashville, what's been neat about that is because the way the arena is built too, it's a small arena. I mean, it's the capacity. Is set at only seventeen thousand one hundred thirteen. They have been over that for the for the past couple of seasons because they sell standing room only tickets. They sell concourse only tickets now, taken off from Edmonton, with what they've done. Um, but that atmosphere, in terms of the raucous rowdiness of it, um, is really awesome to witness in person. To hear the, the loud roar and the cheer, because the low ceiling of Bridgestone helps that. It keeps the sound bouncing all over the place. The way that it's built in um, there really helps with the noise level. Um, sorry, Pittsburgh. Sound is not actually be piping in for the crowd, um, according to a Pittsburgh meteorologist in the Stanley Cup Final. Uh, um, <laughs> but but is is it is a really neat experience and it is kind of unique and it does take on those things from college football, from NASCAR before in the South, from how Southern fans are. That you know, before it was they just didn't really know the rules of the game. They knew you had to score, they knew you couldn't do certain things, but that was about it. And now it's evolved into a hey, we're cheering when you know they're op- when they're able to beat an offside call, they're able to beat an icing call, things like that. And the the rowdiness behind knowing the knowledge of the game has changed things to where they're cheering and banning for a lot more than they used to. Before it's like, let's just be loud and rowdy for for the sake of it, even if they're bad. Uh that's kind of how the cell block kind of started it's like, hey, we're not gonna be good, but we're gonna have fun. And that's what the warden uh would say in the cell box. So it is neat to see how it's evolved and the goalie chant and everything that you know most other fans hate, but Nashville fans love. <laughs> but it's right. just in that I think too, and it's funny to see arguments break out on the internet because most Nashville fans understand that most goalies don't actually suck. It's <laughs> fun. And they do because it's fun. And that's, that's really what it's all about. It's not an actual hatred for the goalie. I think it was Roberto Luongo that even said, I'm looking forward to getting chanted. Because that's true, reporter Lawongo fashion, uh, to say something like that. And even past goalies, Carter Hutton, for instance, he knew he was going to get chanted when he came back (laughs) to face the Preds. So I think it's more, it's a thing of fun for national fans to do the, the you suck part. And it's not really a a personal thing. It's more of a, hey, this is fun. This is who we are. And it's just going to be a lot. We're just having fun. Um, That's when I think people, when other fan bases hear that, they go, oh, Okay, well I get it now. You're not actually being mean, you're just having fun chanting and cheering your team. Like, yeah, that's that's what they do. <laughs> um, yep. So, um they're not ch- you know chanting. I'm not hearing anything that's derogatory or racist or sexist or things like that. It's more of just this is how we do. This is what we've been doing since day 1. We're going to have fun. Um right. so that's what's been the evolution of the crowd too. It's been really neat to see that grow up and now, you know, as I'm sure folks in St. Louis know the way it was when they first got their team and started out We've seen that generation pass now to where we have kids that started going to games in the late 90s, early 2000s, now being growing ups and being able to afford their own season tickets. And it takes that generation to really instill a fan base and have fans for life, because now these are kids that weren't growing up being fans of other teams or fans of, of Nashville. Um, for instance, me, I grew up with the Red Wings because I'm originally from Michigan, moved down here. There was still wasn't a team. And so it took a little bit for me to transition into really following the Predators more because of that. And so that's what you see in the evolution of this fan base is that they all had their other teams. And then finally, that generation shift happened to where was Predators first. Same thing with football with the Titans. It used to be like the Cowboys or the Redskins or um, or things like that. And then it eventually shifted over. So that's been kind of the evolution of, of the fan base down here.
1: So, do you hate the Red Wings uh, after the, the the crazy playoff matchups we saw between those two teams for a while?
0: No, it was really rough. Before I became media, I was going to games and wearing a Pred shirt and a Red Wings hat, and people were like, "Oh boy, oh, you're one of those." Um, <laughs> and I was a kid; I was in high school. It was, it was really tough. Once Steve Yzerman, which I know that name is hated in St. Louis, yes. once was hired, um, it was a lot easier because he was my sports idol growing up. Uh, So it made it a little bit easier to make that transition. But, I mean, especially now, I still keep track of them. They're going through some really rough times. But I I did see um, that documentary called The Russian Five. And if anyone that's listening has not seen it, it's, I think, available on digital now. Even if you're not a fan of the Red Wings and you're a fan of the game, it was so fantastic to see what took place to get Russian players over to North America to play. We're talking sports espionage. And it was so fantastic to see how they said, yeah, we had bags of money and a picture of a Corvette <laughs> to entice them over. So, highly, I know it doesn't touch about Nashville much, but it was just neat to see the evolution of the game uh, happen like that. But, yeah, I don't have any will to the Red Wings. I really I really want Dylan Larkin to succeed because I think they're wasting his talents right now.
1: Yes, I agree <laughs> completely. Uh, and I should point out, too, uh, I don't personally hate Steve Eiserman, And I think most people don't hate Steve eiserman in st. louis they just hate that goal and no. i will agree with that yeah. that goal fuck that goal <laughs> <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> uh, and uh, also i should mention justin you mentioned uh stanley cup final uh, i'm not sure when this episode will air but uh, we are recording this just before game 5 in the uh, stanley cup final series tied 2-2 so uh, to give you a little idea of where we're at when this uh, this episode airs and we've done that every episode, Justin. Don't worry; it always comes up. It's it's easy to forget that we're pre-recording because because I I've done it too. Like, oh yeah, you know, the Blues go to the Stanley Cup final. Oh wait, this is this is airing in July. <laughs> well, never mind. Um, but no, so let's let's get into a little bit more now with with the Blues Blues and Predators history. One thing that I actually had um, thought about way before i mean way way before and i've actually even asked jeremy go over this when i've had him on the show uh Pecorine. now he's a, a obviously a, a fan favorite there in nashville possible number retired when he's uh when he actually does retire just a, an excellent goalie a guy who's won a a a, a Vezina trophy i blues fans are going to hate hearing this from me but uh to be honest one of my favorite players of all time cuz i just I love the way he plays and I love his game. Uh and I just appreciate a good goalie and it's it's a shame that guy has to play for Nashville but uh you know it's just these you can't deny talent and he has it. So but uh, for the longest time that was one of the goalies in this league that Blues fans hated playing against and and that's probably why Blues fans don't like him cuz he's so good. Not that he does anything, you know, that is questionable. Uh, so I gave you some stats here, but to, from 2009 to 2013, so the 2009-10 season to 2012-2013, in that span, record isn't wasn't that great. It was 11-7-3 for Rene against the Blues, but his uh, GAA was 1.81 and a 9.30 save percentage. Probably his most impressive season was the year the Blues started playing well again when they got back into the playoffs, 2011-2012, he was four one and one against the blues with a 161 gaA and a 950 save percentage uh, ridiculous numbers but I'm sure that's something you're used to when you talk about Rene.
0: It, it really is it's it's crazy to see because I mean back on his birthday he, he likes signing contracts on his birthday his last two contracts has been signed on, on his birthday and so last birthday he just extended for two more years uh, because obviously he wants that cup. But it's been interesting to see that every time we say Pecorini's getting old, he's, he's going to really, really just go down and the backup's going to take over. He bounces back and was, ah, 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 he mutumbo's us. <laughs> uh, and it's been interesting to see in his career because really he was a late bloomer in terms of getting starts. And we see that a lot with goalies, but he was also drafted in a round that doesn't even exist anymore. Right. And when he was drafted, he was the backup. And so the scouts for Nashville didn't really get to see him play, but they saw something special in him. And this was really kind of around the time when we saw the the Finnish goaltender really getting ramped up with how Finns train their goalies. And now we see so many more Finnish goaltenders just in the league and throughout hockey in general because they are fantastic. I mean, I love the way that Finland trains the goaltenders. It's really cool because they're trained to be really good at playing the puck, extremely athletic and and. Well, there's a bunch of tall ones as well. Not used to Saros. He's, he's pretty short, but Pecorini being tall helps a little bit. But Pecorini, what, what I've loved about him is his ability, even though it freaks the shit out of people when they, he leaves the crease, he's actually really good at playing the puck. Mm-hmm. And how many goalies are able to do that? Because Pecorini is able to actually start the breakout at times, which helps the defense. It helps the offense. It helps everybody. And it throws off so much because you're not used to the goaltender being able to go out and make the first pass. So to have a goaltender is able to do that makes the teams that much more dangerous because you don't always prepare for that. So aside from being extremely athletic and making ridiculous saves and being an overall good guy, and I, I've said that already about a couple others, but Pecorini is one of those consummate professionals in the locker room. And that's, what's so neat about it is that even after a hard loss, he will talk for five or six minutes in a scrum and he'll mm-hmm. take full blame, even if, even if his offense only scored one goal or no goals for him, he'll take the blame for the loss. Wow. And it was so neat about him as a, as a professional athlete that he takes the time to talk to media. And I think it was, um, gosh, I think it was Gover before actually that Pecarine wasn't ready to talk yet. And even after a loss, he said, did anybody want to talk? And Gover was there and wow. try to get it. I mean, that's how, how many athletes will, will do that and say, did, did somebody need to talk to me? I want to make sure that they get what they need. And he's been so good about that and giving people good answers. And at, most of the time he's extremely upfront and honest about the way the game's being played or about what the team did, but he'll take all the blame. He'll never throw anybody under the bus. Hmm. That's what's so nice about him and refreshing as a professional athlete and the way he talks to the media, he knows what we're asking. And he'll give us a long two minute answer. We're going, well, there's our story right there. Right. (laughs) Everything we need from one question to the point in the scrum, sometimes it's only three or four questions and you have six or seven minutes of audio. Uh, because he, he, he's great at talking. He's great at interviews. He's the kind of person after a practice. He'll, he'll invite you to sit down on the bench next to him to do your interview if you're doing a one-on-one. That, that, that's the caliber of the person that we're talking about. And so then when he finally was able to get that Vezina last year and I was lucky enough to be able to be there to, what to, for that. It was awesome just to see because the smile on his face was so, so huge because he worked so hard for it. Um, obviously it was disappointing the way the season, regular season ended and the playoffs ended for him, but he finally earned that Vezina because it's been talked about so much before. So that's why I like him. Yeah. His stats speak so much, but him being a good person, being involved in the community, doing so much with the community and being so much with the pediatric cancer foundation here in Nashville, and giving back and going to clinics uh and now his new house is only like two and a half miles from mine so it feels like i've increased my property value if i want to sell to a preds fan uh, <laughs> <laughs> but but that's that's what i love about pecorini is that he he has that ability to bounce back all the time even in his age he's one of those guys that seems ageless because he's still granted he'll have rough games at times but he's still a starting goaltender in the nhl and that's all that matters that even if his numbers go up and down like they tend to do with goaltenders He's extremely good and he can shut down and own teams or teams can own him, Pittsburgh and Pittsburgh. Um, it just it happens sometimes. But but yeah, it's been great to see his career. And like you even mentioned before in asking the question, he's he's got to be the first number that's retired, even if they don't win a cup with him. This because of what he's accomplished, he I would expect him to be the first one that gets retired for the natural Predators.
1: Um, so let me ask you then, uh, Chris Mason has moved on from being a, a goalie for the Predators and obviously somebody the Blues fans are uh, very familiar with as well. He's gone on to be uh, do some broadcasting there in Nashville. Could you see Pecorine doing something like that?
0: <sighs> I'm not sure on that. I think he wants to be involved, what I've seen, and for him to go and buy a new house with only two years left on his contract, knowing that he probably will be retiring soon. I would say he's going to do something with hockey. I'm not sure about the broadcast part of it, but I definitely see him because he's been such a great mentor to use I could see him getting involved in, goaltending goaltender goaltender coaching uh, mentors, things like that, especially I think there's at least one other Finn in the system right now as well. Um, I don't know if he wants to necessarily get involved in scouting per se, but with the way that he's mentored other players and been a leader, I can see him being involved in that sort of way. Um, I wouldn't necessarily see him as an analyst right now. His, his answers aren't like Carter Hutton's, where it's very analysty, or Chris Mason's, where it's very analysty, and knowing that, hey, you have 30 seconds, get your, your tidbit in here and there. Um, if anything, for Pekka, I see him more on the coaching side of things and being involved and being a huge member of the community and helping to grow the game there, if that's what he chooses to do. I mean, he could just go back to Finland and live his life there, but he seems fairly happy in Nashville um, because, as I'm sure it's probably the same in St. Louis, too, players don't get bothered much here. Unless you're a Suban who is highly recognizable, they just don't get bothered, they can go out and be themselves and go to Costco and shop and not get bothered. Um, so it, it's it's nice here and he seems to like it. but I see him more in the coaching aspect of the mentorship role. I mean you used to stars live with him for like the first year. and so that's why the whole dad and son jokes fly around is because of the difference in their age as well and the way he mentors him. And how often do you see a starting goaltender knowing that their successor is right there behind them? Be such a good mentor and outspoken mentor as well saying, I know my time is, you know, it's, it's getting ready to go and I want to see sorrows to do really well. He, he's outspoken and knowing that his time is about to be up and that roles are going to change eventually. And I think he's okay with that. He just wants to give to this team. And that's, that's what a lot of people really like about him is his attitude and his professionalism about things. Um, because sometimes goaltenders, you can tell will just say the right thing for the sake of saying the right thing. Uh, that's not Pekarine. he he really truly believes um in what he's saying especially about soros being back there and, and him being a mentor to him as well believing in him the way they celebrate new hockey hugs you can tell there's actually true friendship right there and they're countrymen that helps a lot too they have a, they have something really similar in terms of their backgrounds and stories and soros's dad is named pekka so <laughs>
1: i didn't know that right there <laughs> wow that's impressive um so uh I wanted to ask you, cause you mentioned uh, a possible retired number there for Pecorine. Another player that has to be considered for that is, um, is Predator is great. Everybody remembers him as a Predator. Barrett Jackman, right?
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that was one of those curious signings when that happened. And I could tell what David Poyle was trying to do, but it never seemed like the right fit in Nashville. And everybody knew what Barrett Jackman was about. I mean, Predators fans obviously, I don't want to say hated him, but he was one of those guys that was intimidating. Yeah, I mean, one the look on his face, he knows how to have mean hockey face, and mm-hmm. that's very good to have. <laughs> that yep. have mean hockey face, and the thing that was great is, in um, I'm thinking, remember training camp? He was so so nice. He was such a good dude, and he even had like a plush Nash. Doll to give to his kids and everything that people brought for him. He's a good dude. It just didn't work out in Nashville. Um, but that was one of those interesting things. Like, wait a second, Barrett Jack, we know. Yeah. <laughs> We're pretty shocked when, when that happened and it was, it was short lived and everything. But there is, uh, I love that meme, um, of Jackman in the penalty box. They're like, what are you in for? And the little girl's like, oh, well, screaming at the wrong guy. What are you in for? Yeah, I hit a guy in the face. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, really good dude. I, I didn't get much of a chance to talk to him as much when he was here because it was so, sh- so short-lived. Um, but that's what I, one of the things I remember about him being a national. He was a really nice guy. He's willing to talk to people, and he can still throw a hit. That's for sure.
1: Yeah, 73 games played for the Predators, five points in that time. Obviously never really been a big point scorer in the NHL. Uh, two-year contract signed on July first, 2015 for $4 million, uh, but he was bought out after one season. So I'm sure that was – interesting for predators fans i'm trying to think of a player uh maybe it's maybe not somebody as high profile but trying to think of somebody who the predators would to relate it to if the predators have a longtime defenseman and then he signs in st louis what's the reaction in st louis you know and i -hmm. imagine the reaction in nashville when you first saw that like you said was kind of shock like wait that guy the guy that we've hated for the last 13 years
0: <laughs> yeah it, it was it, well, it was kind of, it was kind of interesting when Dan Hamhuis came back to Nashville last off season and it ended up most people were like okay we're over what he said of Vancouver because he's catering to the fans Vancouver he basically trashed the Nashville fan base in front of the Vancouver fan base said hey it's really good to have people here when he yeah. <laughs> and everybody there i mean even me i'm sure i tweeted about it making fun because it got brought up uh, when Hamus came back, but it was one of those things that he was kicking near the fan base. You say that you're trying to get your new fan base amped up to like you. And so I get it now. Um, and then he went to play for Dallas and who they're now, I don't want to say a rival, but now their playoff history it's a little bit more dislike. And then they play each other in the playoffs the next season. So it was interesting to see Dan Hamus come back and make his way back to Nashville. But I thought actually he was a good signing for the Predators just in terms of having that solid third pairing defenseman that can just kind of count on to do his thing and not anything more. But it was interesting to see him Go away, go to a, a division rival, and then sign with the Predators again too. So that that'd be one of the ones that was curious to us.
1: Yeah, I, I can imagine. I remember uh, when the Blues signed um, uh, uh, now that they traded for Chris Osgood, oh, okay. and he he made some comment after uh, playing with the Blues that uh, you know St. Louis great hockey market probably the I think he said something like it's the best hockey market he's played in. So of course that rubbed Detroit fans the wrong way. Lo and behold, he goes back to Detroit and wins another cup with them. So that I mean, was that. I mean, sure, that was a little awkward for him too. But you're right. I mean, they're catering to the fan base. they yeah. you know, you know, he knew Blues fans hate Red Wings and and hate all. They'll see the, the entire city of Detroit. So that was something good to say. But yeah, it doesn't always uh, uh, live well when you go back to that other city
0: yeah and then in St Louis with chris Mason i don't remember him saying anything, but him having the two years in St Louis was really interesting because it division rival and he was a starter, yeah <laughs> over right. there obviously he he earned that ability to do that because of what he did and naturally earned the ability to become a starter, kind of like how Carter Hutton when earned the ability to fight for starting roles in the NHL because of his performance at backing up Pecorino when he was dealing with injuries as well. So it is kind of interesting how for a little bit Nashville, I want to say, is a goaltending factory, but they're able to show off backups – to the point of, hey, it led them on to bigger roles, which
1: is pretty cool. Oh, that's, that's definitely the consensus around the league, I think, is that Nashville is a goalie factory, okay. so you're not the only one to say that. <laughs> um, I want to talk again a little bit more about the uh, the rivalry here. Uh, I want to get into the playoffs, uh, the 2017 meetup, but first I do want to mention a little footnote, and uh, we don't have to spend a lot of time on this one, but I thought it was interesting. 2014, Vladimir Tarasenko got in his first NHL fight, and it was actually against Ryan Ellis of the Nashville Predators, a guy who, uh, again, Blues fans just love to hate. So that's uh, that's always a, f- a fun one. I'm sure he's very loved there in Nashville. I know there's been talk of uh, possible trades with him amongst the fans, but uh, I think a lot of that just probably stems from some journalists up north. No. Uh, yeah. Um, but, yeah, this, this came after a questionable hit from uh, teammate Eric Nystrom um, I, I mean, it was a hit that I was fine with. You could find the video by the way on YouTube if you're interested. Uh, but, um, yeah, it was interesting because right after the hit, you could tell it jazzed up Tarasenko. And if you watch the video, he just wanted to fight somebody. He went after, he was like, you know, I'm not going to be showing up like this. And he went in, do a scrum, found Ellis and the two of them just went at it. I'm sure, uh, again, I don't know if you remember it, uh, but, I'm sure that was uh, kind of interesting for Predators fans to say. Wait a minute, that Tarasenko is going to fight Ryan Ellis. Is that a good idea?
0: Yeah. And, and also Ryan Ellis, who's especially back then pretty small and mm-hmm. bearded Ryan Ellis, so babyface Ellis because at 14 that was beginning of Ellis's pro career, really right back then. And it was interesting too because went back and watched the video and and the the way the commentators are talking about it as well. Tarasenko was basically trying to avoid the contact and Nystrom reached out to make sure there was a little bit of a, there was a shove and there was contact in it because Sharysenko's are kind of already off balance too. And so that made it look worse. And then it got the teams fired up and the scrum that happened afterward. And then everybody is kind of going, the, even the linesman is like, okay guys, okay. Okay. And then finally somebody starts throwing punches and they're like, okay, you take care of business. And then it's done in 15 seconds. Uh, yeah, oh yeah. It was quick, <laughs> but they were, they were both fired up. It was interesting to see with Tarasenko having so few fights, um, in his history as well. I mean, Hey, whatever, whatever it takes to get your team fired up like that too. And he wasn't, he showed, he wasn't going to take any shit. And you yep. see that makes St. Louis fans appreciate that. And everybody knows how talented of a four that he is. And when <laughs> speaking of Terasenko is funny back when the blues were struggling earlier this season. So it's amazing to see how far they've come. And where said that everybody's on the block. Predators fans were kind of going, what's it going to take to get Tarasenko out of St. Louis? Yeah. Those were some true things on Twitter that people were throwing around of, okay, what's the trade package to send to a division rival to get Vladimir Tarasenko to Nashville? I'm like, y'all, that ain't happening. That's not that that is not happening, but that shows the respect level of the talent that Tarasenko has that you had Nashville fans wondering, hey, how can we get this guy? We we need another four here. Um, So it is pretty neat to see that in the history. I mean, it's hard to think back to 2014 because – things start to blend together so much, especially with Ryan Ellis. I don't, I forget that he's been in the league that long because he yeah. is pretty young.
1: <laughs> yeah. I said the same thing with Terrasenko. I'm like, yeah. man, 2014, I guess Tarasenko was with the team. And then I'm like, wait a minute. His rookie year was 2012, 2013. Yeah. So yeah, of <laughs> course he was with the team. So yeah, it's, it's interesting uh, how how quickly time flies here, especially with uh, the two teams here that have just, you know, obviously been perennial playoff teams with the exception of the blues last season um the years kind of start blending together but it's it's uh 2017 the first meet meet up between these two teams in the playoffs we mentioned vladimir Tarasenko. he was obviously a key cog in the blues machine that year uh so second round the blues had just come off a uh, five game series a pretty dominating series against the minnesota wild uh and this was the year for blues fans that may not remember and any preds fans that are listening this was the year that the uh, Predators actually came off that that really just unbelievable four game sweep of the Blackhawks as the eighth seed. Uh, that is the last time the Blackhawks were in the playoffs, by the way. Um, so that it's fun fun little side note for Blues and Predators fans there. Um, but yeah, that's uh, that was that was an interesting series because as I said, Tarasenko was a key cog. He was held to just two goals and one assist in the entire six game series. And uh, really the Predators defense kind of took that series over. It was Ryan Ellis, Roman Yossi, and P.K. Subban not only playing solid defense and just jamming the neutral zone, but uh, all three of those players recorded five points in the series. They led all the skaters in that series, and uh, just really impressive. And, and I know that uh, I'm preaching to the choir here, but uh, just proof there that the Nashville defense is uh, definitely a strong suit for them and uh, makes it tough. Teams to get past them in the playoffs,
0: especially when they're playing to the best of their ability, and that's what's been frustrating for a lot of Preds fans the past two seasons now. Is that you have that talented top four, yet they haven't been playing to what they're to the potential whatsoever. You saw the best of that come out in 2017, and looking back at that series and just recapping again the scores, that was such a tight series. I no wonder people were stressed the fuck out because one. <laughs> Two, three, four, one goal games.
1: <laughs> yep, and well, and then the last one was um, that was a uh, empty net goal at the yeah. end, so that that would have been a one goal game.
0: Yeah, so I mean, that no wonder the matchup was was look, being looked forward to by so many people because they're fairly evenly matched, and if anything, it was just timely goals to expose Jake Allen. That's really what it tended to be like uh, on there, and then obviously now Saint like Louis has moved on and they they have their starter. Uh, yes. A man of a few words, but it doesn't matter when you're winning. Um, but going back to that series, that's what that was the showcase series for the National Predators Blue Line, uh, and again showed why PK Subban, why they, why David Poe wanted to acquire him when he did, because of what he was able to do in the playoffs, and that he was a playoff performer. And then obviously Ryan Nellis uh, going and earn, continuing to show why he was a staple there and why he should be getting paid. Granted, he had a really struggling season this year, and then Roman Yossi, you know, captain. Um, but it was interesting to see during that series, too, just how close it was. And I know Predators fans are very nervous just because, they, okay, coming off of the sweep, now what? Okay, St. Louis. It was it was such new territory by playing St. Louis in the playoffs and then not knowing what was going to come after that. And knowing, too, people were nervous because St. Louis being so close were Blues fans going to infiltrate Bridgestone Arena. And Predators fans are kind of nervous about that, I remember, as well, because if it's so close – well, the fan base was very different just two years ago, too, that Blues had their established fan base and willing to travel, always willing to travel to Nashville to come to Nashville games. And Predators fans, up till then, you would have a sprinkling at away games. Now, obviously, Predators fans will travel just because they can and they the fan base is bigger now and everything like that. But I know that was one of those things people were nervous about in Nashville was, okay, how many Blues fans are going to be in Nashville? Do we have to worry? Right, what, how's this going to be? um but yeah that was a fun series to watch it was one of those butt clinching series just because of how close it was mm-hmm. uh, timely goals is what it came down to for the predators i remember that and it was that's when the people started to feel like it was a team of destiny was after that series is because they were squeaking out wins against a very good team and we squeak out a bunch of one goal wins like okay things are going in their way the hockey gods must be on their side for right now
1: <laughs> yeah yeah that was uh, that was an interesting series and obviously the uh, the predators went on to the Stanley Cup Final, they beat the Anaheim Ducks in six games in the Western Final and then lost to the Pittsburgh Penguins in six games. The thing that I always felt about that series against the Penguins, a lot of people said the Penguins just made the the Predators look silly. And I I, I don't agree with that, by the way. I think the Predators still looked like a good team. But the way that I saw it was I felt like even though they never had a seven-game series that entire playoff, The Predators, to me, if anything, were just tired by the time they got to the Penguins because they had three grueling series. Again, I know it was a sweep against Chicago, but still a tough series. That's a tough team to play in the playoffs. The Blues, a very physical team, a team that that really kind of took their toll. And then obviously the Ducks have very physical players and uh, players that will just make you think twice about uh, carrying the puck up. So I feel like they just looked tired against the Penguins. And and that was the ultimate demise of them in that series.
0: They were tired and then they were dealing with injuries. So their number one center, Ryan Johansson hurt in the Anaheim series. So he, he was going to be out. Then you had Kevin Fiala who was up and coming at that point too, which was, who was producing, had a game winning goal in the playoffs. That was an awful injury that he had in St. Louis where it broke, where he broke his leg and was just kind of dangling there. Ooh. Um, <laughs> but yeah, but those injuries, too, is something that the, the Predators dealt with because I fully believe, and I think most analysts do, too, if Ryan Johansson were healthy, they would have won that series. Colton Sissons was a great fill-in, but he didn't have the playmaking ability that Ryan Johansson had to be able to get the puck to a Philip Forsberg or Victor Arvidsson. And just a bigger body as well in special teams play. I, fully, I firmly believe that if Ryan Johansson – was healthy that they would have won that series. But that's all the what ifs, what ifs, could ofs, what, all those things like that. Um, and your team has to be built to be able to withstand injuries. It's just the way it is in the playoffs. And they did look tired. Pecorino got tired. And holy shit, the way that Pittsburgh blew him up in Pittsburgh was just yeah. insane that he did not play well in Pittsburgh. So for him to finally last season get a win in Pittsburgh was a big deal for him and a big deal for all the media here, too, going, what does it feel like to finally get a win in Pittsburgh? And he kind of laughed and shrugged it off. He was like, it feels great because <laughs> <laughs> it took so long for that to happen. Um, but that's what that series, too. It's one that Predators fans look back at. And I know people get salty over weird things, but there are a couple missed calls. Um the, the Forsberg offside call was a big one that was in game one where they said that he was offside, but his skate was still on the ice. Um, touching the blue line, so he wasn't because there was a goal that was scored, and then uh, the 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 um, intent to blow with Colton Sissons.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, right.
0: So the two goals called. Back. So I mean, still salty about that. And I think it's okay because the, the way we see an officiating not evolve the way the game has evolved, it's okay to be frustrated with it. I would never put blame on a series like that. Um, it's not like it was you know skating the crease, uh, Brett Hull <laughs> kind of thing. Um, but but I wouldn't. I wouldn't blame this series on those two calls. There's very frustrating calls that could have swung the series in a different direction had the Predators been able to squeak out wins like that. And I think what makes Predators fans salty is that the Penguins won on home ice in Nashville, on Nashville's home ice. And so having to see them celebrate like that, instead of having that uh, distance separating them from it, um, hurt a little bit for Predators fans to see that kind of thing happen. And to see Patrick Hornquist win it on Nashville ice, was a Predators draft that can be traded for James Neal and they couldn't win it with James Neal. Um so it was just interesting to see that series too but yeah they did look tired they weren't I wouldn't say they weren't ready for it. But it was grueling because like you even said yeah they, they put, put so much energy in a sweep in Chicago which was so in, ridiculously awesome to see to see, excuse me, and then going up against in a tight series against St. Louis and then playing the assholes of Anaheim uh, <laughs> the Western Conference final was and people were worried. They were like, are they just going to go and just beat the Predators up? Are they just going to just throw out dangerous hits the whole time? And their style of play. I mean, Anaheim has a history in the past few years, especially of throwing out questionable hits and being hard to play against because they get under your skin so, so well, uh, which is you know, what teams have to do to win. They find ways to win, and they got under Nashville's skin and somehow Nashville found a way to win in that series, even with Corey Perry parrying it. Um, so yes. It was uh just it was interesting to see how tired they were because they were just the, the travel as well to have to go from Nashville to Anaheim and it wasn't like Anaheim didn't have to go to Nashville, but it's just when you think about it it keeps adding up adding up and that's one of the frustrating things about being covering and watching teams at Western conference is we all get to see how ridiculous travel is for Western conference teams and the Eastern Conference oh so we just get to stay in one time zone,
1: yeah. I'll admit, I I always kind of laugh at the stories when I see like, um, uh, I can't remember who it was, but there was somebody with the Rangers who played a game in Philadelphia and even made a comment like, yeah, but I was back in my bed in New York by midnight. (laughs) Like, oh, really? Like, man, that sounds nice for our players. Yeah. They could do that. Yeah.
0: (laughs) It's it's still crazy to see. And it's never going to be an excuse, but I think it was a good reason. I think it was a reason of how tired they were because of all the travel that they did have to do, um, especially in that that Western Conference final series. And the thing is, yeah, every team has to do it. They're never going to use an an excuse, but it, it did wear down on them. And where Pittsburgh, how far did Pittsburgh have to travel? I mean, the, the farthest Eastern Conference teams have to travel is Florida. If you're in the Northeast, they'll travel down to Florida. Ooh. All right. <laughs> so yeah, that's one of those things that – I'll throw it out there. It'd be interesting to see if they redid the league to where it wasn't geographic like that. I'm just curious to kind of go back to to some old school days to kind of lay it out differently, where it's almost like in baseball, where you'd have teams laid out like that. Granted, I love geographic rivalries, and it's just one of those things i would be curious. I'm not saying it'd be better, but it'd be interesting to see how Eastern Conference teams would evolve and develop uh, when they'd have to have a Western Conference travel schedule like all these teams have to.
1: Yeah, no, that's a good point. Um, So you had mentioned uh real quick here. I want to get one more thing in before we uh, start to wrap up here. I wanted to ask you about uh this last season, 2018, 2019. Okay. Um, now, I know that uh, it's a shame Nashville and Blues couldn't meet up there in the playoffs, but there was talk. I mean, again, I, I spoke with Nashville people. People in St. Louis said the same thing. It was just a foregone conclusion. That these two teams were going to meet in the first round because Winnipeg had such a lead, and uh, the Blues once they got past Dallas um, in their in their crazy rise to, to being in the top three in the division, it was like okay, Nat- Dallas is faltering; they're going to fall. Mm-hmm. Um, Colorado's not going to catch up, and, and you know, obviously Chicago was was struggling, so it was it, yeah, Winnipeg is going to take the division, and it's going to be Blues and Predators, and it's just a matter of who gets home ice. And it's just funny how things change, you know. Like I, uh, like we talk about on the show, even though it was for about three hours, it, it was a, it was quite impressive. The Blues were able to, uh, in the last game of the season, get the win against Vancouver, and then uh, for, like I said, just a couple hours, had first place until the the uh, the Jets and the and the Predators played that night. Um, and then you know, you still, even at that point, with the Blues taken first, you're still sitting there saying, okay, well. Winnipeg's probably going to win. There's a chance Nashville loses, and we're going to see uh, Blues and Preds still. And it just it just never happened. You, you kind of expected it to keep happening, and it just never did. So to me, it's just funny to look at the playoff picture and see that they've only – the Blues and Predators, again, same division, and now we have divisional playoffs mm-hmm. since Nashville came in the league. Only one playoff series. Yeah. Interesting.
0: It, it is, and I, I firmly believe had the season lasted two more games, the Blues would have won the division. I mean, just the way that they were trending and the way the Predators were kind of trending. Uh, the Predators were trending very well at the end of the season. They, uh, we don't know what came over them to finish the season to make that push to win the Central. It was beyond us. We're like, how is this happening? <laughs> right. Because given the, the schedule, strength of schedule, the Predators were kind of right in the middle. Um, Winnipeg, I think, had the most difficult, and St. Louis had the overall easiest. So we're like, well, St. Louis is going to win the division just because of the teams that have to play that aren't in playoffs. Um, and then somehow Nashville's like, oh, no, we're going to do this. And so kind of got everybody a little more confident. Granted, my analytics guys at Pelony Box Radio were like, no, no, stars in five or six.
1: <laughs> right.
0: Even at just looking at the, the analytics of it. But that's what was really interesting to see. The, the race that's what made it really compelling to the league too. And I'm, I'm glad it ended that way in terms of com- compellingness of the divisional race, because it came down in the last couple of games to really hash out all the seeding. And it made those games important because how many times have we seen the last two or three games, not mean Jack when it right. comes to seeding. Um So that's what made it really exciting to watch at the end of the season, that even though there's teams that are out of the playoffs, like Chicago, they could still royally screw things up for Nashville. At Chicago won um, and and done all those things. So it was interesting to see that. But I am curious how they haven't met more. And I know that, obviously, the more the Predators and Blues meet in the playoffs, the more of that rivalry will really be established. Because right now, most Predators fans still think of Chicago and Winnipeg as their rival more than St. Louis. And I think it's because of playoffs, obviously, with Chicago and having to deal with that for so many years and dealing with the infiltration of their fan base that I think most Preds fans hate the Chicago fan base more than they do the actual team in general, because there's been a lot of players on Chicago, kind of the same thing with um, St. Louis. I think it's been more of a, we just don't like blues fans infiltrating the arena, blah, blah, blah. Not necessarily the players, because there hasn't been much animosity between the players on the ice. And then with Winnipeg, it's more of a, they hate the players (laughs) than they do the fans, (laughs) because it's not like fans are able to travel easily to Nashville and vice versa. So I'm curious to see how that develops because only being only five hours away, it should be more of a rivalry. It should be more of a traveling back and forth. And it's just a good kind of sports hatred between the two cities and van bases to have that rivalry established. So I know they're going to meet more in the playoffs. As long as both teams are trending in the direction of staying in the playoffs, it's just bound to happen in this format, unless they change form, unless the general manager changed formats again, uh, it's bound to happen again.
1: Yeah, I agree. And, um, you know, your, your explanation of, um, uh, Predators fans hatred for the Blackhawks. It's the exact same way in St. Louis. I think you don't really hate the players too much. It's yeah, you can't stand their fans coming down and taking over uh Enterprise Center. So we're with you on that there, Justin. Um again, man, this this was great. Uh it's always fun talking with uh uh Predators fans and Predators reporters. Uh, you know I feel like there's always been a good mutual respect between uh at least my show and People I've talked to in, in uh, St. Louis media that have talked with Predators media, so I uh, always love talking to you guys. You have good, uh, uh, you, have, you have a good, good take on on hockey down there, and it's uh, it's fun to watch that that game continue to grow down there in Nashville. Justin, before I let you go, I want you to uh, let my audience know how they can find you on social media, um, how they can interact with you, and then obviously how they can find your work for the Nashville Predators.
0: Sure. So on Twitter, I'm at Justin B Bradford. Follow me on there. I like to interact with people. Um, I I don't. I try not to take as much of a homer approach, but I do like to have fun. So I obviously cater to Predators fans in terms of how I make fun during games. Um, so don't take it personally. I don't have any personal feelings. I'm just doing my job. <laughs> um, and then uh, website is penaltyboxradio.com and penaltyboxradio on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. Uh, we cover. The Predators, obviously, but also junior hockey, college hockey, minor league hockey, women's hockey, a little bit of everything there. So even if you're not necessarily a Predators fan, um, we have all different kinds of hockey that's covered on there. We have analytics guys. We have video podcasts, uh, multiple things on there as well. And then um, especially with college hockey, I'm also the commissioner of the SEC Hockey Conference um so if you're if you're a fan of an sec team or even some acc teams we have in our hockey conference uh we have a lot of coverage of that on there as well so we cover the entire southeast when it comes to hockey
1: man i might have to have you back on sometime to talk college hockey that'd be a lot of fun
0: absolutely man whenever yeah you let me know
1: sounds good all right well thank you again sir i appreciate you coming on and um yeah well again we'll definitely do this sometime again when uh the blues and predators meet up next season
0: yeah absolutely thanks jeff
1: thank you well I again want to thank Justin for coming on. Uh, Twitter handles for the show. Your show Twitter is at LGB Radio. Kurt Price is at Kurt Price. Bill Days at Billy Blue Note. And myself, Jeff Ponder, can be found at J Ponder94. Our next episode, it's a big one, folks. I speak with Drew Johnson of the Hockeywriters.com. He is a Boston Bruins correspondent. Uh, there's obviously a lot of history here, you know the 1970 series and and all of that, uh, you know. And then I even mentioned that in this episode that uh, you know there was a big game that the Blues had. I believe it was in 09. David Backus scored a big late goal, and it kind of started a surge for the Blues to uh, march into the playoffs. But I decided, you know what, all we want to talk about right now is the Stanley Cup Final from 2019, just a couple weeks ago. So that is all we talk about. Uh, so make sure you tune in for that episode. Uh, Drew's a very knowledgeable guy and uh, was able to share some insight from the Boston side of everything that happened there in late May and early June. So uh, don't want to miss that one. It was uh, it was interesting hearing some of the stuff he had to say. Well, that will conclude this episode Thank you, everybody, for listening. And until next time, everyone, let's go Blues. Play Gloria. Thanks for listening to the Hockey Show
0: Blues Report of the Week. Have a great day.